Wait, what? So this happened. I'm Rachel Vallesnor, and this is the podcast Hell is Not the End. Although it feels like just the beginning sometimes. Is anything really the end, though? This podcast is meant to explore the limitless possibilities of one's own soul. Why do people do bad things? Why are there countless happenings beyond understanding? Why, when we are cautioned not to do something, do we just do it anyway? The definition of curiosity, a strong desire to know or learn something. There you have it. I will curiously explore why. Hell is not the end. Scott Lee Kimball was born September 21st, 1966 in Boulder, Colorado. He was born to Barb and Virgil Kimball. When Scott was 10 years old, his mother came out as a lesbian, prompting her parents' divorce. His father moved away and eventually remarried. Their divorce would affect Scott very much. Early in his youth, Scott would have his first run-in with police. He fired a gun in the direction of a neighbor's house. Scott and his brother were abused at an early age. While attempting to escape home life, they would escape to their grandmother's mobile home in Nederland, Colorado. But while they were there, a neighbor of the grandmother's took advantage of both boys, sexually abusing them at a cabin he owned. Scott's abuser not only photographed him naked, but filmed him as he raped him. His abuser threatened to kill his father, should he ever say anything. The abuse continued into high school, even after Scott's father temporarily moved them to Montana, and until he was 23 years of age. At the age of 22, Scott had already been involved in nonviolent crime, mostly fraud. He was convicted of check fraud. His first felony in Montana, he was also charged with running an illegal hunting outfitting business. He burglarized houses when back in Colorado. At the age of 23, Scott attempted suicide with a gunshot to the head. It didn't take and it seemed to change him, and not for the better. Soon after, he and others would report his abuser to Boulder police. His abuser was arrested and convicted on seven counts of sexually assaulting a child and then imprisoned. But the imprisonment didn't stop the shame that Scott felt from such abuse. Scott wrote a letter to his abuser's judge asking for justice due to the fact that he had damaged his life forever. In later years, when asked about the abuser, he brushed it off and said, it was a long time ago. In 1993, he was married and moved his wife to Spokane, Washington. The couple had two sons and then divorced in 1997. During their short marriage, she remembers lawsuits against her husband were frequent as he was running scams in the logging industry. Those who decided to partner with Scott were cheated and used legal means to try and get their money back. His ex-wife remembered how he was full of excuses of how it was never his fault. Scott and his ex-wife relationship continued two years after their divorce, only ending when she accused him of rape. He told police that she was trying to gain custody of their two sons. And after failing a lie detector test, no charges were filed. Prosecutors found this case problematic due to the fact that the couple continued to have consensual sex even after their divorce, and supposedly after the actual accusation. In 2000, he violated his probation on an earlier fraud conviction revocation, an earlier suspended sentence that landed him back in prison in Montana. A year later, while living in halfway house for work release, fled to avoid detection and stole a truck from a gas station. Shortly after Scott broke into his ex-wife's house and raped her again, this time charges were filed and an arrest warrant was issued.
Scott runs away to Alaska pretending to be his brother and gets engaged to another woman. He again gets involved with check fraud, writing $25,000 in forged checks. He is again arrested and convicted. While in prison, he convinced the FBI that he could be an informant for them and in turn did not stand trial for his previous charges. The FBI denies this resulted from any intervention on its part that the agent that dealt with him in Alaska was unaware of his previous charges. During his cooperation with the FBI, he informed them of many fellow inmates who had planned crimes about to be committed. Since the first report turned out to be true, the FBI agent who was working with him thought he could trust that what he was being told was also true. As a working informant, his records were sealed, leaving the FBI without knowledge of certain charges. He lied about many fellow inmates for attention and to stay in their good graces. The FBI agent who believed that he was doing a good thing loses faith in his informant and also feared that this would be a shame on his reputation. Scott was informed that he would be released as an informant. Fearing that all his crimes would again come to light, he gave false information about a woman's disappearance. Believing that her disappearance would be solved with his help, Whenever crimes he had yet to be prosecuted for, like check fraud, he would be fined the least restitution possible and very little prison time with the notion he would cooperate and help solve the case. Since he had cooperated with the government, the judge granted him time served with no further punishment. After his release, maintaining his work as a paid FBI informant, he began making money flipping houses and set up an organic beef distribution company with financial help from his mother and his brother. He traveled to many ranches and cattle auctions around the state. Although his ex-wife was afraid of him, she allowed him to see their two sons. During this time, Scott makes contact with a former inmate's girlfriend. A 24-year-old woman diagnosed with bipolar disorder, she was a dancer in a strip club, had a drug problem, and got involved with Scott's scams involving theft and credit card-related theft. The checks that are sent by credit card companies that recipients had thrown away in the post office trash cans, she told her family that she was off to Mexico, but instead traveled with Scott stealing checks through the western states. She was afraid of him and called family members to tell them that she wanted them to know she loved them in case anything ever happened to her. Near the end of the road in Utah's book cliffs, Scott asked her to go hiking. They went up a wash into a dead-end box canyon then up a cliff face. He told her to take off her clothes and kneel on the rocks. He shot her in the head with a handgun she had bought for him a few days earlier while on their crime spree. Since she had used her credit cards to pay for the gas, her parents were able to track her possible whereabouts, also confirming that she never went to Mexico. Her car was found abandoned near Moab. At the same time, he was talking to a 25-year-old high school dropout and a dancer in a strip club. She had a son and was still living with her son's father. Scott told her he owned some coffee shops in Seattle and that she could move to one of them and manage it for him. Remember, he is a paid FBI informant wearing an earpiece for recording, trying to gather viable information to support the lies he sold. He also had an FBI-issued cell phone that was being monitored, so they knew he and this girl were talking back and forth. She moves out of the house with her son's father, intending on moving to Seattle and to Scott's home. The next day, their very busy cell phones stop. It takes three days for activity on Scott's cell phones, and hers shows no activity ever again. 
Her car was found at Denver International Airport and is considered abandoned and towed. Letters were sent attempting to get a payment that went unanswered, and her son's father confirmed that she hadn't visited since she had moved out. Although her parents were divorced, they both shared concern about their daughter. She would often not communicate, but the length of the time passing, it became concerning. They even paid for a billboard with her photo and a tip hotline and offered a reward. Her father had a friend in the local police department who did some digging and had a phone number for a certain informant. Can you guess who? He met with her parents and fed them lies about her possible disappearance, just like he told the FBI. Told them he would show them where her body was the next day if they wanted. That night, he drives to her mother's house and asks her to sign a contract so that he could tie her up and have sex with her, and he would demonstrate what was done to her daughter. She said no. She knew he may be there to kill her, too. Both parents were sure of this. Shortly before the disappearance of his second victim, he met another woman at the casino in Blackhawk. He told her he was an FBI agent, showing her a fake badge and seal. She gave him her phone number, and they went out on a date. She was impressed by him. She was impressed by him the very first moment in the casino as he was not alone. He was pushing his mother with multiple sclerosis up to a poker table. After they started dating, he disappeared to unknown places for long periods of time, which she didn't find strange due to the nature of his job. She had a 19-year-old daughter who was recovering from substance abuse. She had a tendency to run away and had also been charged with credit card fraud. On one of his hunting trips, his daughter disappears and her mother is unable to reach her by cell phone. According to her, the police would not file a missing persons report due to her daughter's age and technically she was an adult. When he returned from his trip and found out her daughter had gone missing, he told her he would use his FBI connections to help find her. Scott planted fake signs that the daughter was around the house and her and her boyfriend had been driving around. She asked her daughter's boyfriend if there was any truth to which he told her that he hadn't seen her since the night she disappeared. He also told her that Scott had picked her up that day, leading her to believe that Scott was in touch with her. Scott then proposes to her in the drive through chapel in Las Vegas. When they get back, they take out life insurance policies and his new wife names him the sole beneficiary. The two honeymooned in Kremlin, not far from where the daughter's body would be eventually found. Less than a year into their marriage, he was an emotionally abusive to not only his wife, but his sons. Because his older son was kind of sensitive, Scott saw this as a weakness, belittling him with feminine nicknames. One night, as the boys were digging holes, the younger son informs the wife that the older son is injured and to call 911. As she was calling, Scott grabs his son, and then they drive away. His wife, assuming her husband is taking the injured son to the hospital, tells dispatch not to send an ambulance. When she and the younger son arrive at the hospital, the injured son was suffering convulsions and nausea, covered in blood. The nurse tells him that the fall had caused serious injury. Unaware that he had fallen, only that he had been injured at the home, the nurse explains that the father had told her that he had fallen out of the car going 60 miles an hour when he mistook the door handle for the window and that his son had been hit by a metal grate. When they took out life insurance policies that included his sons, after the incident, his wife changed the older son's beneficiary to her instead of Scott.
She believed that Scott was in trying to kill his son for life insurance money. After being in an induced coma for two weeks, his son survives and remembers what Scott did to him. Due to the nature of his head injuries, law enforcement believed his memory may have been altered. No charges were ever filed. While the older son was in the hospital, Scott's uncle came to help out with the younger son, bringing with him his two dogs, a tractor-trailer, and a briefcase with thousands of dollars in cash and a hope to go into business with his nephew. Leaving his wife back in Alabama, his uncle was also in business with his nephew during his logging scam days in Washington and also got cheated. One day the uncle was gone and Scott's wife noticed a large stain on a white couch that her husband was removing from the house. He said that one of his uncle's dogs had vomited on it. She told him it didn't look like vomit. He lied to her and said that his uncle met a dancer at a strip club and they moved to Mexico. Not having heard from her husband, his uncle's wife files for divorce, hoping to get him to contact her. She called Scott to ask about her husband and he told her the lie that ran off to... She called Scott to ask about her husband and he told her the, the lie that he ran off to Mexico. A few weeks after his uncle disappeared, suspicious activities were reported on his credit cards and had bad checks written on his bank account. Traced to Scott. This activity is reported to the FBI, but what action was taken is unknown. A year after his uncle's disappearance, Scott's father gets an email from his brother saying that he was enjoying Mexico and unlikely to return. No further correspondence. Hmm. I wonder why. Their marriage is doomed. He's never there and is cheating with a woman from California. She buys him a gun since he cannot legally buy one. Security camera footage would show him depositing checks into a bank account, having stolen money from a local business. The police talked to an estranged wife for answers. Without him knowing, she called him on speaker so they could listen. After the phone call, they asked her what her husband did for a living. She told them he worked for the FBI. She told them about her missing daughter and that her husband might be responsible and about the incident with his own son, but that she had no idea where he was. The FBI issued a warrant. They suspected he was living with his girlfriend in California. Where is he finding these new women to date? The FBI notified local police they were about to make an arrest, and he led them in a chase that lasted 260 miles, only until he ran out of gas. After threatening to kill himself, he eventually surrendered. Scott eventually pleaded guilty to all four murders, and he was sentenced to 70 years, blaming the FBI for pushing him into a criminal world. Whatevers. His confessions were always slightly different, never really telling the same account twice never really telling the whole truth. He was suspected in other murders as well. He was, and is, a horrible person. He turned his criminal behavior of fraud and running lives and being a serial killer. Uh, that's enough attention. My hope is that no one has to live in fear, ever. And as always, I will never give up and read the signs. Special thanks to all the reading materials I could get my hands on, internet mostly. Thanks to wikipedia.org. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Rachel Vallesnor, and this is the podcast, Hell is Not the End. <laughs>